Our scripture sermon reading this morning is from Genesis 18, verses 16 through 33. I invite you to turn in your Bibles and follow along or look at the screen as well. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me, and if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fares the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Again he spoke to him and said, Suppose forty are found there. He answered, For the sake of forty, I will not do it. Then he said, O let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose thirty are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find thirty there. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose twenty are found there. He answered, For the sake of twenty, I will not destroy it. Then he said, O let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again, but this once. Suppose ten are found there. He answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Let us go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for the privilege, the opportunity we have to pray. It is only by Christ's substitutionary sacrifice that we have access to you. We're grateful to know that you hear our petitions and that you know all of our needs. You know every detail of every person's life, every need, every concern, all of our hopes, all our despairs. But we pray that you will draw our eyes and our hearts to you and only to you that you will speak into our lives and nurture our faith and our trust in you for your glory. Use us as witnesses that your reputation be exalted. Father, we pray especially this morning for Yuri as he prepares to travel tonight back to Ukraine. We pray that you give him safe travel 
and that you give him an abundant measure of your grace, that you will use him there as a tool for care and healing among the people, and Lord, that you will use him as a witness and proclaimer of the gospel wherever he may go. Bring him back to us safely and content in your care. We pray that you would bless and care for his family as he is away. Give them encouragement and ample provision and peace. Father, we pray for the sin relief ministry. We pray for them in a particular way this morning as they attempt to carry tangible help to those in Morocco. Lord, we pray that you would mitigate the impact of last week's earthquake. We pray for the people who have lost family, who have lost friends. We pray for those who are injured. We ask that the country and the region be touched by your hand, your healing hand, your gracious hand, as they struggle through this time of sorrow and trauma. We pray that this disaster will not have the final word, but that your gospel will go forth in great power. Lord, point the world to yourself as their only hope. Lord, we want to pray this morning, especially for our mayor here in Milton and some of the challenges that he's been facing recently. And we just pray for his protection and for your grace to abound in his life and the life of his family. We pray that those who would rise up in opposition, in heinous threats, that you would expose them and that, Lord, your justice might prevail. Lord, all around our world, every day, there's some massive event that seems to unfold that causes great despair. We pray that you might show us how to help, how to minister, Lord, and how to proclaim the gospel through it all in a way that points them to you. And we offer this prayer this morning in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. Amen. I do want to uh, piggyback just a minute on Nathan's mention of the Crabapple Fest. You should have received a letter notification this week. And uh, this is an incredible opportunity. Between 30 and 40,000 people typically frequent uh, Crabapple Fest. And uh, it is a great opportunity for our church to be a good neighbor, to be an ambassador for Christ. And so I pray that you will take advantage of the opportunity. We need probably 25 to 30 people to make it a um, well-balanced effort so that it's not riding on any uh, one person's shoulders or any few people's shoulders. So I would encourage you to sign up and uh, take advantage. If you are one of those people that's a little bit shy and doesn't want to talk to people, there are things for you to do. You can tie balloons and you can stuff bags and supply water. And uh, if you're a person that likes to engage people and smile and have conversations, then we especially need you. And so sign up and join us on Saturday morning, October the 7th, uh, for this great opportunity. 
This morning we are in Genesis 18, and we're coming into that ominous section, right? We're getting moving toward Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, one of those infamous passages. And you may think, oh, I don't know that I want to go through this, but listen, there's great, a great uh, message from God through all of this for us, especially for us who are in Christ, an ominous warning maybe for those who are not. 2022 was a year that saw some truly bizarre uh, Guinness's world records set. Uh, for instance, there was the fastest time to alphabetize the letters in a can of alphabet soup. You'll never guess, but the record was two minutes and 8.6 seconds. That's pretty incredible, right? Or the farthest tightrope walk for someone in high heels. That was 639 feet. Imagine doing that, ladies, in four-inch stilettos. Then there was the largest gathering of people with the same first and last name, 178. Hirokatsu Tanakas in Japan. That beat the 2005 record of 164 Martha Stewart's, all gathered in the same place. And then there was the fastest time to eat 10 Carolina Reaper chilies. That wasn't even recorded. I think it went nuclear. You know, there are many activities in this world in which to invest our energies, our time, our resources. Many are fairly innocuous, even if they are a little bizarre. Christ followers, though, have a particular have a particular responsibility in this life. Our greatest passion, our greatest responsibility is to display Christ, is to reflect the glory of Christ in this world, to live in ways that clearly display God's grace and God's generosity. J.D. Greer said, if you're not generous, you've never really experienced the gospel. Basically, the idea is this, it is impossible to really experience Jesus and not be radically generous in response. And he offers three reasons for this. He says, first, there's a major component. First is a major component of what it means to be truly converted is that you realize that his kingdom is the most beautiful and lasting reality in all the universe. You begin to find your significance in it, not in what you possess. So you don't have to spend lots of money to add beauty and significance to your life. Second, you recognize Jesus, not money, is your security for the future. So you don't have to save extravagant amounts of money or gain possessions to feel secure. Thirdly, to be truly saved means you have some sense of how gracious God has been to you. The Bible repeatedly says that the sign that you have tasted God's grace is that you become gracious or you become grace-filled. We've been studying Abraham's life. God called him to a particular task. It is through he and his descendants that the entire world is to be blessed. He struggled with it. He has been up and down. We've seen that. God has shown fully all the flaws in Abraham's character. He's not perfect. But there is a godly maturity that we see beginning to blossom in Abraham's life. 
truly that graciousness of God, grace filling by God. It's especially true this morning in the text that we are studying. Genesis 18, verses 16 through 33, is comprised of two primary points. First of all, God announces or reveals some important information, some important matters to us, but more particularly to Abraham. And then the Lord cultivates and nurtures a gospel passion in Abraham. He shows him, he draws out of him this grace filling, this generosity that abounds beyond the the boundaries of his own life and reaches into the world around him. So let's look at these two things this morning in in this uh, chapter and see how they apply to us, how they challenge us, how they call us to be like Abraham and to demonstrate generosity and graciousness in the world around us. First of all, the Lord discloses important plans, first of all for Abraham and then for Sodom and Gomorrah. He reveals or discloses important plans for Abraham. It's not for Abraham's reputation or for his material gain, but God has promised to bless him abundantly anyway. God has promised he's going to give him land, he's going to give him uh, many descendants, and that he's going to bless all the world through Abraham. And it's because of this promise that Abraham has certain responsibilities, and that's what God points out to him in these passages. He must teach and train his descendants accordingly. He should teach his descendants because they are the ones that are going to carry the mail in this. Abraham begins the process, but it's through the descendants that God is going to accomplish his purpose and plans for Abraham's life. He offers a graphic contrast here in this passage this morning. What it means to be a blessed people in contrast with what it means to be a cursed people. He's doing this on purpose for Abraham. He wants Abraham to understand the difference and why the cursed people need to see the blessing. They need to taste the blessing. Abraham's descendants are those blessed people, Sodom and Gomorrah, the cursed people. God reveals his plans for Sodom and Gomorrah to Abraham you know, there's nothing so offensive and unacceptable to the regenerate, my unregenerate mind as the idea of judgment. Nothing. All those who hear of judgment coming because of some moral assessment are immediately offended by this. If you go public with a rebuke for immorality in today's world, you're going to be canceled, are you not? You're going to be canceled pretty quickly. You suggest anything about judgment for immoral behavior, you'll quickly receive a brutal reaction from the masses. Speak out against homosexuality or uh, same-sex relationships or transgenderism or any other perverse behavior. Yes, I called it perverse, but all sin is perverse. You will reap the wrath of society. Sodom and Gomorrah, these two cities were without excuse. They had seen the grace of God already working and working on their behalf. The kings who came down from the north raided them, pillaged them, took from them people and resources and confiscated it, taking it back 
to where they were from. God brought about redemption or a reclamation project through Abraham by sending him and his servants on a mission to defeat those kings and bring back all that had been lost. The people of Sodom and Gomorrah knew this. They had witnessed this. They also heard the testimony of Melchizedek, honoring and praising God. They witnessed he and Abraham honoring God above all earthly possessions. Abraham wouldn't take anything for his trouble. Instead, wanting God to receive all the glory for it. They had Lot living among them. Lot being God's man. Lot being a righteous man. Although a little bit, a little bit shaky, maybe. Why he would choose to live there. Maybe he would tell us he was being a missionary to those people. I'm not sure that you can really make that case. But it's clear that he remained faithful to God there as 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 7 and 8 tell us. This is what it says. And if he, that is God, rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. So you get a picture of the tension that was evident in Lot's life. He was living for the Lord, but all around him, and I mean literally all around him, was unrighteousness, closing in and putting the squeeze on him. How would those cities have responded to the news of coming judgment? Well, they would have protested vehemently, would they not? Judgment. Why? What have we done? They would have claimed that judgment was unfair. We hear it every day, do we not? Or they would have put God on trial or tried to put God on trial and say, why would a good God bring judgment against people that he's created? God informed Abraham. Sodom and Gomorrah's destruction was to be a great warning. A great warning. God's ultimate judgment on all sin is certain. We may live in the uh, false security of not experiencing direct judgment in our world today, but the signs are all around us, and God continues to show us and reveal to us that judgment is real. Judgment is real, and it's devastating. God wanted Abraham to know it, and he wanted him to pass it on to his descendants, God's people have a distinct purpose. That is to reflect God's holiness in this world, this broken world, this world that's pending judgment from God. They're to display God's generous grace and live for His glory. But God not only reveals His intentions for Abraham and for Sodom and Gomorrah, but He also cultivates Abraham's gospel passions. He cultivates in Abraham a gospel passion. Now think about this. God has called him out from Ur of the Chaldeans, which was a pagan land. They worshiped false gods. Abraham, we don't know anything about his background other than where he was from and that it was an ungodly place and that God saw in him 
the opportunity to use him, not because Abraham was righteous, but because God was going to make him righteous and use Abraham for his glory. So he called him out and he sent him to this particular place that called the promised land. And he did it so that he might bless him with many descendants and through him bring Messiah, bring the Son of God into the world who would die for the sins of man and resurrect to offer redemption. For those who stood in the crosshairs of judgment, God offers grace and he would do it through Abraham. Notice in this text, as God gives the news to Abraham of what's about to happen, Abraham still stood before the Lord. Abraham still stood before the Lord. Now, apparently, post-exilic um, scribes ch- ch- changed this around. Actually, it was supposed to say Yahweh or the Shekinah God stood before Abraham. But these scribes thought that this disparaged God's reputation or that this made God appear to be inferior. So they said that Abraham stood before him. But some of the rabbis in recent times have have turned this back around and said what it should say, the correction of this, is that the Shekinah was actually waiting for Abraham. Why is this important? I think it's important because if we're not careful as we read this passage, we begin to elevate Abraham and think that Abraham is the one who's doing all this, that Abraham has got some some special um, dispensation upon himself here rather than that God is the one that's doing it. God is the one that's drawing him along. God is the one who's building in Abraham a compassion for the lost. Abraham's beginning, I think, to get a glimpse of what God wants to do in and through him, what it means for his descendants to be a blessing to the nations and why that's important. He's starting to turn outward in his concern. He's no longer thinking about, I need a son. I need a son because it disparages my reputation to not have a son. Every great man has sons, right? Someone to pass along his legacy to. Abraham's not thinking that way. Abraham's got his sights set on people other than himself, including unrighteous people. So God's leading him to ask the right questions and to intercede for these people. Abraham knows that Lot and his family are in Sodom, and I'm sure that's some of the motivation in his thinking here is that would God just wipe out Sodom and Gomorrah and along with it, Lot, his nephew? What if there are other people there like Lot? What if Lot has had an influence and other people have put their faith and trust in God? Is he going to just wipe them out as well? He knows He knows that God is going to do what he says he's going to do. So he's pleading for their lives and for others who might be righteous. Notice the question Abraham is asking. Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Indeed or really? Will you really? Will you really sweep away the righteous and the wicked together? It's a rhetorical question as the obvious answer is negative. God won't do that. God doesn't do that. The primary point seems to be an appeal to the righteous character of God. Would a righteous God destroy righteous and innocent people along with the guilty? 
He's not suggesting that the reprobate be saved or justice prevented. It is an intercession that God will spare believers, the elect, in the city. John Calvin suggests that Abraham is terrified at the destruction of so great a multitude. He thinks that Abraham demonstrates grief for his fellow man here. I tend to agree with that. I think that's right. I think God's been bringing Abraham along. He's been teaching. He's been continuing to revisit this covenant with him and his long-term purposes for the covenant to bless the nations, to bless all tribes and tongues. I think Abraham's starting to understand that. And now he's looking at a holy and righteous God. There's no doubt in his mind about that. And God's getting ready to bring judgment to bear upon a mass of people, two entire cities. I think it's fair that Abraham is the one through which the nations will be blessed to be having this question. He's growing in sensitivity to man's lostness and the justice of a holy God. He's not like James and John. Remember those famous disciples of Jesus? When they saw the Samaritans and some of their behaviors and lack of listening well, and they said, Lord, you want us to call down lightning and thunder and, you know, fire? Have them wiped out? You haven't done that, have you? We thought about it, maybe. That's not what he's doing here. He's persuaded that there are righteous among the unrighteous. He's not like Jonah who resented God's saving the unrighteous, the Ninevites. And it prompts us another question. Should an entire community suffer because of the activity of some. Abraham, his descendants have entered into a covenant relationship. We've seen that repeatedly, right? God continues to rehearse that with them. They've just entered into this this covenant community. And so Abraham seems to be thinking, you know, as a community goes, what about those that you are not on the same page together? How does that work? It exposes the tension that God's covenant promise and the people's responsibility. They travel together, and yet God's covenant is greater than our individual behavior. God's response is conditional here. He says, if there are righteous, then the righteous will escape. I'm a righteous God. I'm not going to judge those who are righteous. The righteous will be delivered. Abraham knows this, I think. I don't believe Abraham is suggesting that God's actually going to do this, but he needed to have this discussion. He needed to have this encouragement, just like you and I do. Will God do the right thing? God's a right-doing God, right? He is a righteous God. He's a holy God. Can we really trust that? Can we really believe that? Even when things and events appear to be suggesting something different. Even when thousands in Morocco are, die, have died because of a sudden earthquake. Can we trust that God is righteous?
which leads us into the prayer that Abraham prays. Some call this dialogue bartering or negotiating. It's certainly indicative of what went on in ancient Near East and still goes on in that part of the world very often. Abraham is determined and he is firm, but notice his prayer. He is also extremely, extremely respectful toward God. He's not stomping his feet. He's not pounding on anything. He's not crying out and attempting to blame God for anything. He is asking. We're reminded of what we're encouraged in the New Testament to believe, right? About prayer. You have not because you ask not. Abraham seems to believe this. He's asking. And he's asking in a healthy way. Not in a demanding way. He's determined and firm, but he's also respectful. He's persistent and he's direct. Imagine, six times he goes back to God. Six times. Well, what if there's only 45 there? What if there's only 40 there? What if there's but 30? What if there's 20? What if there's 10? Will you still destroy it? What do we learn from Abraham's intercession? Well, we learn that it's a modest prayer. He's not sticking his nose into something that doesn't concern him. God's brought him into this discussion, right? God has put him here. God's placed him here. He's not asking God, uh, demanding knowledge about God's secret purposes in election and how that works. He's, He's praying about what has been put in front of him. It's a humble prayer. He didn't imply or act as though God owed him anything. I am nothing but dust and ashes, he says. But he repeatedly diminishes his own standing before God. It's persistent praying. As I said, six times he prayed for Sodom and probably more that are not even listed here. He gets the gravity of what's about to happen. And his heart goes out to them. I think he's certainly praying for Lot, but I think he's praying for the whole city. I mean, Abraham and his servants put their life on the line to bring back peoples and things for these people who are perverse and unrighteous. He's persistent. Much like the persistent widow in Luke chapter 18, whom Jesus said would have her prayer answered by the judge because she continued to beat on his door and ask. It's persuasive praying. He pleads God's own character and glory. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? In other words, God, this is about your reputation. If you you bring judgment to bear upon these cities, and there are all these righteous people there that get swept away with the guilty, it's your reputation that will take the hit. Much like Moses after the golden calf incident. You remember when he was so angry, he came back down that the people were worshiping this golden calf that they had made. And they had already backtracked on the stipulations of God's law and were living for themselves. 
living like the people of the promised land who were pagans. And Moses was so angry and he lashed out and he asked God to just kill them, just wipe them out. God didn't say anything. Okay, we'll wipe them out. But then Moses had another thought. And he said, but, you know, if you wipe them out, it's your name that's at stake. It's your glory that's at stake. Probably shouldn't wipe them out. God said, okay, Moses, we won't wipe them out. I'm a God of a second chance. I'm a God of, a re- of redemption. I'm a God of grace. It's for his glory, for his reputation. It's pleasing to God that we intercede for the world, for the wicked, for the unjust. Judgment is certainly coming. You know that and I know that. The Word of God tells us and we believe that it's true. Judgment is coming. And there are signs such as earthquakes and sickness and death that continue to affirm this. That the brokenness of the world is headed toward a devastating judgment. We are to equip and encourage one another to reflect God's glory in the midst of this, just as God is encouraging Abraham to do with his own people, with his own descendants. Make sure they know that our responsibility is to display his generosity and his grace to the world that they might repent and turn before it's too late. I would have you notice the confidence that Abraham demonstrates here. The scripture says that the Lord went away. When he had finished speaking, he went away. Reminds me of, uh, we have this discussion sometimes, Karen's grandmother, bless her heart, she, was, she would call the house looking for Karen, and, and I would say, well, she's not here, she's at work. And she'd say, well, okay, how you doing? I'd say, I'm doing fine. She'd say, okay, bye. And it's like she was gone before she even said bye. And that's what I feel like when I read this, that God said what needed to be said. Abraham, I have given you everything you need to know now. I'm gone. How are you going to think about that? And the scripture says Abraham returned to his place. He didn't stay, you know, pitching a little fit or saying, but you didn't answer my question. Or you didn't tell me how this is going to work out or end. The scripture says that Abraham returned to his place. What does that say? What does that mean? I think what it means is that Abraham has his faith in God's character. We've had the discussion. We've had the prayer. I have made my passion known, my conviction known that these people, Lord, are you doing right by these people? And God says, Moses or Abraham, I will do right by these people. I'm a righteous God. I'm a holy God. I will do right. Abraham didn't have the clarity that maybe he wanted, except that he could lean in and trust in God's character, that God doesn't make mistakes. God revealed judgment about to fall on Sodom and Gomorrah. God has revealed in his word that judgment is coming for this broken world, this rebellious world. Abraham was to teach the descendants to keep the way of God. 
God says to us that we are to demonstrate his, generous, his generosity and His grace because judgment is coming. We need to teach them to repent and turn before it's too late. The gospel will result in blessing that will spread but only to those who hear and heed. We are the true descendants of Abraham and we must stay on course. Even in a world that doesn't want to hear. Even in a world that resents language of judgment and righteousness and immorality. It doesn't alleviate us from our responsibility. We must be a city on a hill filled with light and with hope. Not to display the perversity and the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. Not to emulate the sin and perversity and carelessness of a world that's gone rogue against God. The destiny of unbelievers, those who reject Christ as Savior and Lord, is like that of Sodom and Gomorrah. Unbelievers will suffer judgment. There's no way to mince those words. There's no way to tone them down. There's no way to make them palatable. Because the truth is not palatable. But it is the truth. God will rescue the righteous. Those who believe the gospel and trust in Christ alone. The ones whom God has declared just. Not because they are in their own behavior, but because He has declared them so. They will be delivered just out of this fallen and broken world. This is God's word. There are countless numbers of people living in this community who do not know this truth. Many are living pretty decent lives. Even we might say moral lives to a certain degree. They're certainly not reflecting what we see going on in Sodom and Gomorrah. But without the righteousness of God, they stand facing the judgment of God. Their eternal destiny hangs in the balance. As God's people, we have responsibilities. We have responsibilities to meet them, to tell them. As I said, Crab Apple Fest is a great opportunity. All those people, what an opportunity to fulfill part of our responsibility, to be salt and light, to be Christ's ambassadors. Daily, we must be sensitive and aware of the many, many people. Many, many people that are crossing our paths every day who don't know Christ. Many, many people who don't know this truth. We must follow Abraham's example. Pray vigilantly. There's a great lesson here for us in how to pray and for whom to pray. We must ask God to fill us with the boldness to proclaim his gospel faithfully. It's not within us. It's not within our desires to do it. Most all of us, if we're honest, are pretty shy when it comes to telling others about Christ or talking about the judgment of God. Because we know what kind of response it's going to bring. So how do we do it? We do it in the power of his spirit working in us. That takes a lot of time on our knees, asking God 
being prepared by God, being fashioned by God, having him nurture gospel passion in us, to be willing to take hold of the throne and plead with God for lost souls, and to be willing to be a part of that message that goes out to them. This is our responsibility. This is our mission as a church. It's our responsibility in His power. Father, we're grateful and thankful for who you are, for the opportunity and privilege we have to be used by you in this incredible task. Lord, we pray for our community. We know that we live in a very blessed part of the world. Materially speaking, climate, Lord, just the the general way of life here is so, uh, so lavish and abundant. And it's easy for us, Lord, to become complacent, even as your believers. So we pray that, Lord, you might help us see the world through your lens, that we see it according to your perspective, see the need of so many who are navigating this life in their own power and apart from you. Some are demonstrating open perversity. Some, Lord, have seem to have it together. Some seem to be living life in a very uh, acceptable way. But Lord, in the heart, in the heart, so many are in disbelief, trapped in unbelief and sin. Let us not be faithless. Let us not be uh, complacent. But Lord, give us the compassion the concern that we see demonstrated in Abraham's prayer, that we might be willing to be persistent, seeking, Lord, for the gospel to go forth, even through us, if you will deign to privilege us for that purpose, and that you might raise up people for your own name's sake in this community, Lord, and even around the world, through the ministries of this church, for we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.